My lord, they have found Queen Cleopatra. She is locked in a building, that is to say, a tomb. Hurry. Oh, Mark Antony is with her, they say. He's dead. What? Lord Antony is dead. Is that how one says it? As simply as that. Mark Antony is dead. Lord Antony is dead. The soup is hot. The soup is cold. Antony is living. Antony is dead. Shake with terror when such words pass your lips. For fear they be untrue. And Antony cut out your tongue for the lie. And if true, for your lifetime boast that you were honored to speak his name even in death. The dying of such a man must be shouted, scream. It must echo back from the corners of the universe. Antony is dead! Mark Antony of Rome lives no Welcome to episode 17 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and the mellow, lovely, dulcet music you just heard there is going to be something of a marker for a departure from our regular episodes as we are going to be travelling back in time to the golden age of Hollywood to talk about um, a much maligned but still fascinating film from the 1960s. Joining me on this trip into the past is my Film 89 writing partner in crime. It's the Welsh bluesman. Mr. Steve Amos. Steve, good to have you back. It's very, very good to be back. I can't wait to have this uh, deep dive into sand and sandals. And indeed, indeed. This is uh, hopefully going to be the first uh, in a series of episodes where we uh, talk about historical epics, which are, uh, we're, I think we're all pretty much a big fan of here of the Film 89 team, yeah? Steve, you haven't been on for, well, I think episode 10, the, the solo episode was the last time we had you on. It's been a while. But you've been, you've been elsewhere, you've been uh, on... Well, probably the best film podcast in the world, really wrong real. Without me. Without me. <laughs> I was so in my oats all you along. Were. It was it was your first solo outing and fair play, it was a wrong real episode four hundred and twenty one where you discussed with James Hancock uh, Day for Night, the Francois Truffaut film. Uh, Fabulous film. Uh, Fabulous film. Fantastic episode. Please, guys and girls, uh, check it out. And by way of some strange, almost like um, event horizon sort of happening, you've brought something back with you. A dark, <laughs> powerful force. A, a man whose film knowledge is, is near that of infinity. He's finally here on Film 89. He's the host and creator of Wrong Real, Mr. James Hancock. Thank you so much for having me, fellas. And uh, yeah, I'm, we've done so many episodes together on Wrong Real. I'm thrilled to be here on y'all's show and just to be able to sit back and sit in the passenger seat and just uh, go wherever y'all take me. Yeah, I got to thank you, James, because initially this was um, this was going to be pitched as a, as a 
uh, a wrong wheel episode we got the idea that this would be the first of, of a series looking at some of the historical epics so you were very kind to let us uh, actually switch sides and do it as a your film 89 debut but james it's great to finally have you here for anyone who, who listens to film 89 and isn't familiar with wrong wheel shame on you first off you haven't been listening to us for the last 16 episodes where we're always plugging it but james tell us a little bit about your podcast and the youtube channel uh, wrong Reel, we created uh, four years ago, and I guess what we try to do to make this a little different from other podcasts, we do a lot of filmography episodes, or we'll tackle a giant topic or a franchise as opposed to one-offs. And you guys came on and did a big Quentin Tarantino episode, and I mean, but because those episodes can be pretty labor-intensive in terms of the research and the editing, I, I definitely do one-offs as well, as you mentioned before, we did Day for Night but I definitely just relish basically looking under every stone of film history that I possibly can from the earliest days of the silence up to the present day. And whether it's for the big screen or the small screen or big budget or low budget, everything is fair game. And my YouTube channel mostly is concerned with TV, doing a lot of recaps and reviews of shows as they're ongoing. But I'll also do little 15, 20-minute film reviews along the way as well because for whatever reason, YouTube has such a dynamite search engine. They do a great job of helping people find your content in ways that iTunes and SoundCloud just don't. And so I definitely like taking advantage of that to the best of my ability. But long-term goal is to have basically a wrong reel 2.0 where there's much more overlap between the two endeavors. It's great because some of your most recent reviews you've done, films like Mandy, like your reviews. I uh, love yeah, Mandy, yeah. Your reviews are popping up first. You know, I'm watching them. And then, you know, I'm. it, it was the same even like back in, I think, was it late? 2016 when you did L, the Paul Verhoeven film. Obviously, you know, you reviewed that. Oh, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my channel it. was pretty new at that point. Yeah. I was just still trying to figure out the uh, the format, but man, L was one of my favorite movies of the year. Paul Verhoeven just absolutely crushed it with that, loved it. Yeah, and I was literally, you know, I went on YouTube one morning and searched for reviews of it, and yours was the first to pop up. And, you know, that was my introduction to the film. Unfortunately, then it didn't come out in, in the UK until, I think, was it February last year? Which is a bit of a bummer, but... Um, James, obviously, we're going to be taking a deep dive into, you know, the, the history of Hollywood. But you've actually, you know, you've dipped your toes in the industry yourself. And, you know, anyone that's familiar with Wrong Real will obviously know your past. But can you just tell us a, a bit about your experience working in the uh, film I've industry? On, yeah, if, uh, when I first got out of college, I went out to L.A. and got a job that I hated working as an assistant to an agent. Bailed on that, went to work in physical production for a while, got to be an assistant to a producer on Ridley Scott's film Hannibal, and did some accounting gigs on some movies like Geely. Ultimately ended up in the story department at Phoenix Pictures, reading screenplays, writing coverage on books and things like that. And then kind of pulled a reset, went to business school, and after business school, moved to New York because I worked at Showtime in between my first and second year of business school, fell in love with the city. And once here... I started dabbling in the world of animation. I do a little producing with director Bill Plimpton, did the feature film Cheatin', as well as uh, two shorts so far, one more upcoming, and you can find those on iTunes, but it's Cheatin', Lonely Stoplight, and um, Cop Dog. And now, yeah, I'm going to do an exclusive uh, release on my YouTube channel of the next short film that I'm collaborating with. So I'm really excited about trying to start acquiring and or producing more short-form content for the channel, apart from me just doing reviews and commentary and that sort of thing yeah. and obviously with wrong real uh, you know a podcast has been going out for, for four years and it's just expanded and the, the guests have now sort of become a community in and of themselves you know steve and i are just proud to be part of that albeit the you wrong know, real wranglers or the wrong real rough riders or the yeah. wrong i mean there's a, a real wrong real crew i mean there are always the little nicknames but I, I always like uh yeah the wrong real wranglers seems to uh <laughs> 
But y'all are definitely part of the inner circle at this point. And this is going to, you know, it, it's going to sound quite saccharine and, and cloying. But, you know, we all discuss film privately. You know, we've got a, a big chat group on Twitter. And amazingly, given the fact that we're all very kind of, you know, opinionated people, we've got some quite strong opinions on things. We, we, there's no bickering as such, which which I think, you know, amongst film fans, that's, well, it's almost unheard Or if of. there were to be, it would be heavily frowned upon. Because as my yeah. stepdad used to say, we can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think that is a lost art form, sadly, when it comes to social media. Yeah, I think that's, you know, when you get a lot of people together who are like-minded, got the same sort of loves and, and likes and, and things like that, you know, it helps that, you know, we're all pretty much well-adjusted adults, more or less. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah, if you stretch well just to do the breaking point yes that would include everybody in that chat room <laughs> <laughs> yeah within reason so uh, the, the film we're going to be talking about tonight is 1963 Cleopatra it's a film basically as much known for its production woes and the controversy surrounding the making of the film it's you know it, it's overblown budget the, the things that went wrong the, the fact that for a period of about two years that the film was it was basically the hot thing for the press to to talk about the way i approach this is i think a few times now i've wanted to pitch episodes to you where we sort of go into the those films which have got trouble making ofs and i think the first one i wanted to do was apocalypse now but you've already done an apocalypse now episode and then i was thinking you know, what are the films we've already done blade runner which was a, a trouble production in itself that was a great episode. I really enjoyed that. But but nothing. I, I can't, you know, as much as Apocalypse Now is just, you know, Martin Sheen had a heart attack. You know, Heart of Darkness, you know, the making of Apocalypse Now is just a fascinating film. But when it comes to sheer crazy scale near failures, and I, I, I use the term near failure yeah, because the thing that. really did near sort of implode on itself. I think Cleopatra is just as good an example of, of the Hollywood system just running out of control. Well, I, th- I think that um, one thing I was thinking of as we were preparing for this is if you look at a film like Lawrence of Arabia yeah. being made around the same time, released a year before, yeah. we could discuss that for hours and mm. we'd be discussing what's on the screen. Cleopatra is a gargantuan task and yeah. you don't even touch what's on the screen. No. <laughs> it's. I always like to make notes when we... If, if we're talking about a new film that we've just recently seen, I, for whatever reason, I don't make notes. I think, you know, everything's fresh, everything's, you know, in my mind, and it's all more about opinion, whereas when we're talking about, you know, an old film doing a retrospective, I do like to make notes. I've I've made more notes for this film than I have probably, you know, the last few episodes I've done combined. You know, I'd say 90% of it is about the production of the film as opposed to the actual film itself. You know, I hope we're going to be able to offer some, you know, sort of analysis of, of the film, but the making of this film is just deserving of a film in and of itself. I think it was it, um, Becky Diana was pushing a, a book she'd been reading recently and you've started reading it, Steve. It's The Big Picture. Which yeah, is a brilliant book. Great read and I've probably captured, or it's a great snapshot of the industry, where it stands, why you see the different forms of content on the different platforms, what's driving different forms of content to those different platforms. It's an incredibly eye-opening read. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've listened to a, quite a lengthy um, excerpt from the audiobook version on Audible recently. It seems to me like as if the book is about modern Hollywood and about the modern Hollywood system, which is very much different to the sort of period we're going to be talking about now. Back in the 50s and 60s, the studio was king. The studio, I think, was as much you know a celebrity as, as the actors and actresses that would work you know as part of their stock company. Like even that that concept of actors and actresses being tied to a studio. Like, you know, um, I think before Elizabeth Taylor came out to Cleopatra, she was tied to MGM for several years. 
know something like that is just unheard of these days and you know i'm not sure exactly when that thing sort of died out maybe some of our younger listeners who are not too familiar with you know the way hollywood used to work it was very much you know as much as ultimately the, the same drive and goals were there they wanted to make money they were far more you know different concerns and you know contractually actors and actresses could be tied into as you're going to see now to cleopatra to a film that is just you know eventually as we saw just went completely out of control obviously you've got films like Waterworld and titanic you know titanic could have literally sunk it it you know as it turns out it, it was one of the most successful films ever made but i think you know for that period where you know the press were charting the making of the film I think people were saying this is going to be another water world, weren't they? Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing I was getting from that um, reading uh, the big picture is how the tumultuous changes that the industry is going through right now. And of course, when Cleopatra was being made, it was also going through yeah. very similar changes. Obviously, the platforms then was TV versus the big screen. Uh, but those changes were still there. And if you look at the story of, uh, of Sony... Uh, and the relationship that Amy Pascal had with people like Will Smith and uh, mm. Adam Sandler, she was trying to replicate in many yeah. respects what they had back in the 40s and the early 50s. And that's breaking down now, just as it was yeah. when Cleopatra was being made. Do you think, James, there's similarities with you know the way the system is now where it's more about the actors like you know Tom Cruise he's not affiliated to any particular studio although he is affiliated to certain franchises like Mission Impossible well it's the franchises that are affiliated with the studios now I mean for Warner Brothers they're far more preoccupied with their Harry Potter franchise or the DC Comics franchise than they are with having any one actor committed to them under their roof and obviously Marvel is pretty good about locking down long-term contracts with their actors, but in the 21st century for Hollywood, the franchise has become the new movie star as opposed to the star itself. But I 100% agree. Anytime you have a new tech, a period of technological innovation with massive disruptive changes, you're going to see new opportunities emerge. And in the early 60s, obviously widescreen, enormous spectacles on the big screen where Hollywood's way of competing with their rival format TV. For whatever reason, they never viewed TV as a potential ally or another distribution platform. They reviewed it as they viewed it as a rival. And so they went all in. And some of these movies like El Cid are incredible and some of them are less so. But with Cleopatra, I think you see this phenomenon reaching its zenith. And as you're watching it now, it really does feel like the end of an era because we will never see this level of physical production and spectacle on the screen ever again. It's just not economically feasible to have hundreds of ships and thousands of actors and all these different wardrobe and the almost grotesque, <laughs> grotesquely ambitious production design. It's something we will never see on the screen again. So when you watch it, it's almost impossible to take your eyes off it because it's real. And we're so used to not seeing anything real that you go to see Infinity War, which is so much fun, but it's all ones and zeros and pixels and things like that. It's just a different experience. Yeah, you know, funny you should bring up Infinity War. I was watching some of the behind the scenes material about it the other day. And there's entire scenes in Infinity War, in, in particular the you know, the battle set on Titan. And ninety-five percent of that, apart from some of the shots of the of the actors and actresses, is all CGI. Granted is CGI that holds up, but you know, like you say, I don't think you can ever beat that that tangible feeling. Unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately, it's just the fact that special effects, on the most part, haven't evolved to the point where we look at them and we're completely fooled. Whereas we look at something real and it's it's there. You know, subtle use of CGI, I think, can enhance you know a film, much like Contact, which is a film that completely you know it embraces CGI in a way that sometimes you're looking at CGI and you don't even know it's there. And that's a film from you know over twenty years ago. It, it is something I think. 
and you know as we've mentioned several times before both on wrong reel and on film 89 cgi is something that it, it's a tool that is you that should be used when need be but i don't think we're at a point yet where it is going to replace practical filming i don't think there's a, a modern day example of something on such an epic scale that was filmed completely for real yeah, 70 millimeter. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's like, yeah. it just seeing something in 70 millimeter, that much detail, whether it's Lawrence of Arabia or this, whatever the case might be, there's so much information contained in the frame, so much richness that your eye just has a different response and a different reaction. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've, we've seen already that some films, you know, with, that have relied recently on, on computer technology in the last two decades or so. Even now, as we move up to 4K displays, then, especially when you look at films, say, from, you know, the the, the mid 90s where cgi was used quite heavily 4k really shows up some of those films for what they are and they, and, and they haven't aged well because of the fact that the technology is moving on and it, it's actually showing up the the cg effects at the time to be you know, yeah it's like watching horror movies from the late 70s that were meant to be seen on vhs but you yeah. watch like a fully restored version you're like whoa this isn't nearly as scary as it was before because you see all the flaws and the cracks in the system. But whereas if you watch something that was made for VHS distribution in 1979, it almost had this like pseudo-documentary terrifying flavor to it. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a few films I've watched recently, um, like Ministry of Fear and films like that, where you know the black and white photography, you can see that as they remastered the film, they've had to readjust the contrast and everything. Because if you've got, say, for example, a scene with a character that's supposed to be in darkness, if you watch it now on Blu-ray, you can actually... You can see them. It's showing up. It's not a flaw of the of the filmmaking at the time, but obviously, cinema screens of the 30s and 40s were low resolution, mm. and you know as time moves on, it can highlight you know some of the the sort of inadequacies of the filmmaking at the time. We also have to turn off your smooth motion on TV. Most oh, TVs yeah. now, the default setting is for news and sports, which is, you know, smooth motion, it looks fine there. But if you're watching a movie that was shot in 24 frames per second 50, 60 years ago, or a silent film that was shot in 16 frames per second, you need to turn off the smooth motion so that you have a chance of enjoying it as is. Because luckily, when a movie is shot on film, it basically makes the opportunities to restore it limitless. Like if you watch Twilight Zone, the restoration, there was one season shot on VHS or on, on video, so they can't up-res it or improve it beyond a certain degree. It just, and it just looks like a mess. But all those scenes, seasons that were shot on film, it's the amount of resolution and details is effectively limitless. And so they look like they were shot yesterday. And so you just, it, yeah, luckily when things are shot on film, it does allow their lifespan to uh, have a lot of legs. Yeah, you know, another example of that is, you know, an older film from uh, 1979 that in 2001 was, was upgraded with new effects was um, Robert Wise's Star Trek, the motion picture. And lo and behold, then in, you know, around about 2009, 2010, when high def technology is, you know, coming in the form of, of Blu-ray. They can't upgrade that film because the new elements, new CG elements were filmed in 480. Oh, gotcha. <coughs> Oh, no. so what they're going to be doing is possibly so you have an CGI upper limit on there. On there. Yeah. yeah, you have and an I'm upper limit like, on it. Yeah. So, you know, I'd rather just restore the old one and just let me see it as it was in 1979. Yeah, but you know, with the audiences today it, watch the same that's thing. That's right. And you know, it shows a bit of a, a lack of forward thinking on Paramount's behalf. They, you know, they did the new effects, but and you, you know, high-definition television, the actual standards for that, I was amazed at this. 
The actual standards for high definition TV, that the resolution and the 1.70 to 1 screen format was actually devised in 1983. It was a, a television standard I think the likes of Panasonic and Sony sort of all agreed on that they were going to try and push towards at some point in the future. Obviously at that time then you had Laserdisc was, was fairly new and then in the 90s DVD came on which you know pushed the resolution up again and then it wasn't until Blu-ray that they were actually finally able to reach this sort of TV standard that they would had in the back of their minds for decades. But then you know to, to, in 2001 to, to, to remaster a film and not think forward towards that goal of high definition uh, presentation I just think is ridiculous. Whereas like you say James films like Lawrence of Arabia filmed on, on film in 70mm they're time and we've seen recently, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, films like Ben Hur, 2001, which uh, it was uh, 50 years oh, old this year. It looks amazing. It looks incredible. A film from 1968. The, you know, all the effects elements, the you know, the, the onset uh, photography. It it looks remarkable, and it looks like it was shot yesterday. Or even a movie like Metropolis that was shot in the 20s, I much prefer to watch a science fiction film with the effects of its time, just cleaned up and made pristine, as great as you can get them. But when you start tampering with the effects and trying to modernize them, they're always going to eventually be feel out of date in some ways. So it's why you look at the enhanced special effects of the special edition Star Wars. They look terrible because they're done mm. 20 years ago. Yeah. Just clean up the original movie, release as is. Like, I mean, when I watch a Ray Harryhausen movie, like, I don't expect them to modernize his stop motion and make it look as good as Leica. I just want to watch the Ray Harryhausen as it was. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up watching those films and, you know, as much as by that time, stop motion animation wasn't being used in, in you know, filmmaking at the time in, in the 80s I still love those films and you know I do to this day films like Jason and the Argonauts I, oh, I was hell watching yeah. so uh, The Valley of Guanji the other day yeah. a favourite when I was a kid and myself and my two kids we were laughing all the way through it was just so entertaining yeah. even today and they accept it and they accept the special effects as it was and you know when done right even like to this day the, the, the scene with Talos the bronze man you know, the Beautiful. way the way he's animated when you first see him you know, they're, they're walking along the beach they're looking up at him it's it, it shot from low to you know to make the, the stop motion model look huge. It's, it's the personality that's put into the animation, even though that you know it looks a bit shaky now when he's moving. When done well, something like stop motion can still be effective. And I think you know it's unfortunate the stop motion sort of died out when Jurassic Park came in, and you know the likes of Phil Tippett was you know he, he had to either change with the industry or he was going to be out of it. And well, Isle of Dogs came out this year, and the stop motion yeah. was beautiful. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, obviously that you know that is more of a of a completely animated film, but yeah, it, the stop motion has got character, and CG. It you know those those dinosaurs in nineteen ninety three in Jurassic Park, they still look great. I think actually they look better than the more recent uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, hundred percent, absolutely. I don't know what was it. I don't know what they did differently, but they are remarkably more effective and far fewer actual effect shots in the movie. And, and you never notice just how few dinosaurs you actually see. I but, think that's just a, a tribute to the filmmaking, though. Yeah, I Whereas think so. I think that's missing sometimes. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think, uh, granted, films like Ready Player One, who, who are just you know full of effects and stuff, some of which don't look real, but they're not supposed to because he's in an artificial environment. But, you know, Steven Spielberg back then, much like James Cameron did when he was um, utilizing CG for the first time in The Abyss and Terminator 2. Filmmakers like that who strive for perfection, they're going to expect it from special effects technicians. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, CG is used so frequently these days that we're, we're just going to get far more films which are unconvincing than those which are convincing. So, moving, on to, oh, moving back to Cleopatra. James, when was the first time you were introduced to this film? A couple of days ago, I saw it for the very first time. No yeah. way. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been putting this one off for a long time because I, while I do enjoy historical epics, 
this one, <laughs> I always like my spider sense was tingling as to whether or not it was something I should invest uh, four hours and fifteen minutes into. The run, the runtime is prodigious. It is. It is. <laughs> and and I knew there was going to be some padding and some some extra fat on the bone that might not necessarily need to be there. But I've always been curious about it from a historical standpoint. So I was thrilled to finally actually get a chance to do the deep dive in both the making of and to see the the spectacle uh, itself uh, on celluloid, as it were. And yeah, it didn't disappoint when it came to spectacle, and it didn't disappoint when it came to all the controversies behind the scenes. It's not going to rearrange my top ten historical epic, you know, list anytime soon. But I am glad to finally have this one under my belt. Oh, fascinating, Steve. What about you? Ah, well, I saw it for the very first time many, many years ago. Mm. I couldn't tell you when. It was one of those films, because uh, I don't know if it's the same in the United States, but over here, every bank holiday, you would have a yeah. epic film. It's either James Bond or it's an epic. And that would be every bank holiday, every Christmas, every Easter, you'd have something like that. Every Easter is always the Ten Commandments, you know, and every um, Christmas you'd have Ben-Hur and things like that. So I, I probably didn't even watch it all in one go. I probably mm. just saw a little bit of it one year and another bit of it another year and just you know built it up like that. But and then I saw it again two weeks ago, yeah, for the first time in Donkey's years. Yeah, I think the first time I ever saw Cleopatra it was probably going to be probably the mid to late nineties and in the early nineties I, I sort of got the bug for Stark epics because my mum who was she was very much of the idea that I, I had to watch old films you know in order to appreciate film history. She was a you know a huge fan of films like The Searchers. She actually made me one Sunday afternoon sit down and watch The Searchers, which it's good education. You know, it may well have been. I, I think the first western I actually can remember seeing is probably um, Lonesome Dove, the TV miniseries. I think was that was late eighties. Yeah, mid late eighties. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but yeah, I think the novel came out like eighty five, eighty six, or sometime after that. And it was it was just after that that she made me watch a few films that were literally ones that I grew up watching. These films, I want you to watch them. And that the three films I remember making me watch were The Searchers, The Great Escape, and Ben Hur. Loved all three, but Ben Hur sort of got me, it gave me the bug. I think the next one after that I watched was Spartacus, and then I just went through them all. And out of the historical epics that I, I sort of made myself watch, like you, James, I put Cleopatra off because I'd heard about the fact that it wasn't a great film, and it was a bit melodramatic, and like you say, that runtime was a bit prohibitive. Although similar films with, a, with an epic runtime, like the, uh, the Ten Commandments, I wasn't put off by those, because I think I was... You know, I like the sort of religious sort of stories. Not, I'm not a particularly religious person myself, but I do like these sort of films like Ben Hur, which is a tale of the Christ and and the, and the Ten Commandments. But Cleopatra, it was the last one I came to, and I honestly can't remember what I thought of it the first time I watched it. I saw it again then, probably about maybe 10, 15 years ago on DVD. I can't recall what version it was. I know at some point I saw the three-hour version. I think that's the first version I saw on TV. But I think the the most complete version we've got now, the four-hour and eleven-minute version, the, that's the one I've watched recently a few weeks ago in preparation for this episode. You know, what it reminds me of is remember that scene in uh, Close Encounters when uh, they're trying to get the kids to bed and they say, "But we want to watch this film," and it was the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yes, and, it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's four hours long. Yeah. That was me as a kid. I mean, I do your homework, do your chores, whatever it is. Can I just watch this film first? And it was an excuse not for me to, you know, for me to sit down and not do anything for two or three hours. Yeah, it is. You know, it is a long film, but obviously, as we're going to come to, it could have been much longer. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, Mankiewicz really wanted to make two three-hour movies, 
apparently uh, Daryl Zanuck said, look, the, the crowd is frothing at the bit to see Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor on screen. You can't postpone their love affair for like a year for the sequel. It's got to all be one movie. And maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong, but we only have the movie that exists. Yeah. So if you go way back now to the history of, of the character, um, I think it was, is it Plutarch? He was a Roman uh, state historian who, from whose writings much of the mythology surrounding Cleopatra, who was an Egyptian queen, is drawn. She was the descendant of a long line of uh, Macedonian kings. And in, I think it was 1607, William Shakespeare wrote Antony and Cleopatra based mostly on, on Plutarch's writing. And then film-wise, I think the, the first one is the 1917 version starring uh, Theda Barra. I believe so. Have you, um, no, there was a 1912 version. 1912 uh, version. Helen Gardner. Ah, right. That's what's great about the silent era. Whenever someone says, oh, this was the first Shakespeare, or this was the first vampire film, yeah. or this was the yeah. first whatever, like two years will go by, and someone will find like in a closet, like an old print of some like earlier version. So it's always dangerous to make sweeping statements about the silent era. And then you've got the Cecil B. DeMille version in 1934 with Claudette Colbert, I think. Before we've got the version we're going to be talking about now, that was the the last version of, it, yeah. of Cleopatra. Have either of you seen the the, the Cecil B. DeMille version? I haven't seen I have that not. version. I, I have seen the silent version. I have that right. on DVD. Ah, yes, it's a. I think it's a Masters of Cinema. I think. And then I think it was uh, the Fox Head at the time at Spira Skouras in the early sixties. Obviously, you know, we'd had a slew of historical epics. They were in many ways, I think, like the. The way comic book films are, are, are the the flavor of the moment, much like westerns were, you know, for for several decades back, you know, in in the the forties, fifties, and sixties before they sort of died out in the seventies. Yeah, like from the robe to the Bible, it's like a 10, 12 year period where we just got a ton of them. Was it the robe that was at fifty three? I think so. I think that was the first because Scorsese always talks about the first time he saw a widescreen cinema experience and that the curtains just kept going back, but just kept drawing further and further back and he was there for The Robe. So I think The Robe was one of the first big high profile widescreen films in the early 50s. Yeah. So obviously, you know, they wanted to dip their toes in the in the historical epic sort of trend at the time. And, and Skouros, his idea was just to film again uh, the silent version. <laughs> well, yeah, they owned the script with no yes. with no updates. Yeah, so yeah, you know, it's ridiculous. How are you going to make in, in a spoken language sound film? You know, a, a silent film. Yeah, in fact, I think they they just handed over the script and said, "We'll make this." Yeah, and I think when no, you when you base, no dialogue. yeah, yeah and it was like disintegrating like ancient parchment. They're like, "You want us to shoot what?" Like, I mean, yeah, that it just shows because obviously the head of Fox at that time came from the world of exhibition. He was just thinking, "Oh, movie stars." concept that's all that matters but it never actually occurred to him like oh the execution of the screenplay might actually play a role in the subsequent production yeah well you know when you look at the inception of that idea or less film you know the script of a silent movie and and, and sort of you know remake it when you're going to be throwing you know millions of dollars at the screen you know like that when when that idea is based on something so ridiculous you know is any surprise that the film you know almost bankrupted the studio well, it's one of those things also when you write a screenplay, having it finished before you start shooting the movie is always helpful because of a basic principle. You don't shoot your movies sequentially. You shoot all the scenes in a certain location, then you move on, and you try to basically condense as many scenes with certain stars into one place as possible. And the least efficient way to shoot a movie possible, the way that guarantees overruns, is by just kind of making it up as you go, which is ultimately what ended up kind of happening. 
The film was first went in production in 1961, I believe. Is that right? Well, the, the first day of filming. Now, this, this shows you the thinking ahead that these um, producers had. They wanted to film. They wanted to film Egypt and Rome. So, where do they decide to film it? They decided first of January, in the middle of winter, in London. Outdoors, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a country not really known for much sunshine, especially in January. Yeah, so that then you, you can see that the film was um, was doomed from the very beginning with regards to budget, at least. And every day they had to spend hours touching up the set because January is a time of storms, it's a time of snow, it's not a time of sun. And if we do have sun around that uh, period of time, it's, the sun is very very low and the shadows are very long. It's not very convincing. And yeah, it, obviously um, Joseph Mankiewicz was the man who eventually took over, but it was directed by someone else, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Mamoulian, yeah. Mamoulian, yeah. Who was a huge director in the 30s, but by the early 60s, his career was starting to, uh, it was in a state of decline, and doing historical epics wasn't necessarily his uh, his forte. Ruben Mamoulian is, is is the director, and even the cast, you know, initially, it was it, Peter Finch Peter was Finch, playing. Yes. Yeah, and uh, it's a Stephen Boyd, I think, was... Uh, yeah, Stephen uh, Boyd, yeah. obviously, um, you know, a couple of years before, played Masala in, in Ben-Hur. So, you know, he, he was pretty much a shoo-in for, you know, a historical epic like this. I think they filmed... Yeah, well, Mamoulian shot for 16 weeks before he was asked to uh, part ways with the film. And I, yeah, I think and he has. He spent $7 million. $7 million. They had 10 minutes, 10 of, minutes of usable footage. Some of which you can still find on the. Um, it's on the, the Making of documentary on the Blu ray. But to shoot for that amount of time and spend $7 million, which back then was a colossal amount. Obviously, you know. Um, and that's on a budget of $2 million. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's gone over by more than three times there. Unbelievably, moving you know, way ahead to the end of the story, reports suggest that eventually the film cost anywhere between 31 and 44 million, which when you adjust for inflation, that is easily the most expensive film ever made. Yeah, I saw somewhere that in two, if you, if, this is a stat written in 2016, but at the at the time it was the equivalent of like a $350 million production in 2016, yeah. which would be a movie like Infinity War plus like the marketing. I mean, it was just like, yeah, it was a, a ridiculous sum of money. And you know, also for the studio, you know, back then a theater ticket would only net a studio 35 cents. So you think of, you know, the amount it's cost to put that film on screen and however, however many butts they get on seats to actually watch that film, they're only taking 35 cents from every ticket. What's surprising as well is, okay, we can blame, you know, the studio head score us, but the producer of this was Walter Wanger, who had... Yeah, by the time the film went into production in 1961, yeah. he'd been in the industry for 40 years. Mm-hmm. He was the man who brought the script to Paramount for The Sheik, uh, Rudolph Valentino. Yeah. You know, that's how long he'd been in the industry. So he should have been able to, you know, navigate some of these pratfalls from the very beginning. <laughs> you would think so. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's a lot of impulsive risk takers. There used to be studio heads and producers where they just felt like if they had enough passion and vision for a certain project, like just by ego and talent and force of will, they could make these movies successful. In the days now where most of these studios now are run by much larger corporations, obviously they have much more oversight. But it seems like from like in the golden age of Hollywood, the buck kind of stopped with the head of the studio. And while they had, certainly had investors, they were a boss. And if they wanted to roll the dice and take a huge gamble, there weren't as many checks and balances to tell them no. Like today, if Bob Iger wanted to commit career suicide and basically bet the studio on a, on a colossal venture, there'd be a lot of people there to tell him, 
tap the brakes. But back in the early 60s, it's kind of the end of an era before all the corporations started moving in, like Gulf and Western buying Paramount and things like that. Mm. So we really are seeing the end of the studio era. But at the same time, though, I think that Skouros didn't really understand everything that was happening at the time. Because, you know, the story of how um, Elizabeth Taylor was hired, yeah. Wanger phoned her up. Eddie Fish answered the phone and he said, um, I want you know, to speak to Elizabeth about doing Cleopatra. She didn't want to do it. And she said, I think as a joke, tell him I'll do it for a million dollars. And he said, OK, that's half the budget gone. And Skouros didn't know anything about that. And she ended up making like seven, I think, because she, as the widow of the guy who created the uh, the 70 millimeter format they're using, and which she insisted upon, as well as the uh, the overtime she received, in the end, uh, finally, there's some huge court battle between her, Richard Burton, and the studio. But ultimately, Cleopatra, she ended up making about $7 million off it, which was obviously at $1 million would have been the, the most in any actor ever made in history. Yeah. But yeah, Elizabeth Taylor did just fine off this. Yeah, $7 million, $1963 is just insane. And I think, you know, there were a few actresses that were considered for the part at the time. I think Joanne Woodward, Joan Collins, and a lot of um, Fox stock actresses at the time were tested. Obviously, Peter Finch and Stephen Boyd were initially on board to play uh, Caesar and Mark Antony. But I think it was quite early on that Taylor was cast, having been freed, I think, of her MGM contract in 19... I think, was suddenly last summer her last MGM film? Yes, he was, yes. Yeah, yes. and that was uh, the film she made, of course, with Joseph Mankiewicz, with whom she formed... A strong friendship. When uh, Mamoulian was pushed off the film, um, having spent seven million dollars, I think wasn't it Taylor that suggested that Mankiewicz be brought on board? It was part of a contract that she got director approval, so she said right. either Mankiewicz or George Stevens. George Stevens, yeah. yeah. And you know, going back, James, to what we were saying earlier on about the way Hollywood was back then, an actor or actress having director approval. Unheard of, yeah. I mean, there are a few actors with a lot of power. Like in the fifties, you saw a lot of actors forming their own production companies, which is why like Kirk Douglas suddenly is producing films like Spartacus and Paths of Glory. But it was still pretty rare for an actor to have their own production company and to be picking directors. But to have it as a contract when you're a hired gun, that was very rare. Yeah, it was. So Taylor, you know, she became the you know the first actress to be paid a million dollars for a film. Now. This is what I find most fascinating about it. Her contract stipulated that her million dollar salary be paid out as follows. $125,000 for 16 weeks work, plus $50,000 a week afterwards for every week they go over, plus 10% of the gross with no break even point. So when the film was restarted in Rome in 1961, she had already earned over $2 million, which was the initial budget of the film. Makes it easy to uh, suddenly complain about chest colds and things. I mean, I think she had some legitimate health issues. However, if you have that in your contract, there's no reason why you can't just go out partying all night. Like, you know what? My my chest isn't feeling so great. Uh, We might have to postpone today. So I have a feeling some of the delays might have been financially motivated. Quite possibly. I I hadn't thought of it like that. But uh, because she she was in hospital with pneumonia. Well, yeah. Reports. uh, Like you ever moved before where you're paying your movers by the hour? Like they don't necessarily (laughs) hurry to get no. the job done. They, they, they just take as much time as they have. And so I think, yeah, when she nearly died in the UK, apparently like the doctor was like shaking her and beating her on the chest and I'd do like an emergency tracheotomy. Like, obviously that was legitimate. They were doing surgery. But whenever I hear about actors having quote unquote health problems, it reminds me of when I worked in on Geely in the accounting department, one of our movie stars came down with quote unquote bronchitis, which he'd basically been parting his face off and we had to shut down the movie for a couple of weeks while he recovered and had to do this huge insurance claim. But everybody knew that it was drugs and alcohol related as a result of da- dating uh, J-Lo, not, not basically with the official story. So I'm always skeptical of these health problems. Yeah, well, it obviously certainly benefited Taylor because, you know, in the end, 
netting seven million dollars. What, what would that even be in today's money? Uh, I don't, when you think that um, some of the top actors now are only getting paid seven million dollars. Yeah, I mean it's probably be like the equivalent of like what Robert Downey Jr. made off for like the Avengers, which I think he made like eight, seventy or eighty million because of his piece of the pie. So it would definitely be up there and just one of those things where you can start your own country if you like. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then because of her time away from the uh, from the film, Mankiewicz thought he had plenty of time to rewrite the script from scratch, which of course led to all the other problems afterwards. Well, yeah, I think there was when, when Taylor fell ill, and I think it was it wasn't it pneumonia that she she, she had uh, Asian flu initially, and then it right. developed into pneumonia. So obviously Taylor's off the shoot; she's in hospital recuperating, and, and I think it was written into the insurance clause that the insurance would only cover the production if they filmed every day. And I think there was a, a minimum amount they had to film. I think Peter Finch was going out onto a, a ship, onto the set of one of the ships. Filming ten minutes of footage and just going, and that and that footage would never be used. It was literally just to keep the insurance company happy. Sounds like a scam. <laughs> yeah, well, and I know also in the documentary of the, the making of is Skouros, uh, the head of the studio, was getting very nervous about the investors uh, that were backing Fox, and he kept really pressuring them to generate footage that would keep the uh, the investors kind of calm and, and, and less, slightly less agitated, which is yet another reason why he was unable to give Mankiewicz nearly enough time to rewrite the script as requested. Yeah, so when they finally come back, uh, things had changed drastically. Peter Finch was off. Um, Stephen Steve Boyd, Boyd, he yeah. was... I, I, I forget that he was um, he had contractual obligations elsewhere. So then we end up with Elizabeth Taylor, fit and well, and then we've got some recasting to be done. So Rex Harrison replaces Peter Finch and fellow Welshman Richard Burton comes Hell on board yeah. replacing Stephen Boyd. Which was another extremely expensive cost because yeah. he was on Broadway playing in Camelot at the time and they had to pay a quarter of a million dollars to pay out his contract. So this the cost is going up before even anything had been filmed. It seems like every time they had a decision to make, they always chose the most expensive option, no matter what that decision yeah. might be. You know they, you know they've picked Richard Burton. You know he he was actually in the Robe in 1953. That was like as you say one of the first big historical epics. He'd done Alexander the Great in 56. He did the Longest Day in 1962. By which point he probably already filmed much well, of his. He did. He, he and they uh, took Robbie a break. Yeah. Cleopatra were yeah. waiting for so long between takes and between their shots yeah. that they said, "Oh, please give us something to do." So they were lifted, taken to France, yeah. filmed the Longest Day, and then taken back to Rome. Now, granted, the Longest Day is a massive ensemble piece. I forget is is Richard Burton's role in that film one of the smaller ones? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, so they're all small, really. Yeah, it would you know that could have only been a couple of days shooting, but you know, but still, you know, the idea of I think the only time recently I can remember that being done is when um, Tom Hanks purposely filmed the first part of Castaway, and then went away. I think Robert Zemeckis he, he made another film in between, wasn't uh, it? The yeah, one with Harrison, yeah, with what lies beneath. beneath. And then they came back after Tom Hanks had lost all that weight, and they finished, and they filmed the second half of the film. Obviously, something which you know was done just to allow for him to drop all that weight. But you know, the amount of things that went on during this ridiculous extended production—they actually, I think, shooting days—it was four hundred days. And I don't think that allows for the numerous breaks in between where the actual production ground to a halt. That's, you know, that's well over a year. And ultimately, I think the making of the film was—it was spread over about I think two and a half years altogether. Well, from yeah, it started the first of January. 1961 yeah and it finished 1963 yeah that's insane so Mankiewicz have you seen any of his other films prior to Cleopatra oh I mean All About Eve is one of the all time greats yeah, I yes, love that's All About Eve all, yeah, yeah that is that is one film which I think is guaranteed you, you've got to watch it if you if you think you're a film fan that's one film you've got to watch it's one of the best movies ever made about showbiz marvellous acting marvellous uh, writing and just has like 
acid and venom running through its veins. It's I love movies that are cruel, uh, oftentimes delightfully cruel. And George Sanders is brilliant in that movie. He also plays the narrator. But yeah, I've got a lot of love for that film. Yeah, he also did uh, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Um, he mm-hmm. did the 53 version of Julius Caesar with uh, Marlon Brando and James Mason. And uh, the film of his, which I saw as a result of preparing for this one, is Suddenly Last Summer in 59 with Elizabeth Taylor. Have either of you seen that? I haven't seen that one, no. Yeah, yeah A Letter to Three Wives is also worth mentioning as well oh, yes, from 1949. Right, right now I've not seen that one. But Suddenly Last Summer, I think it was it was quite obvious. By that time, obviously, um, Elizabeth Taylor's star was on the ascendancy, but she showed real star clout in that film. I think that film... Oh, sorry, and quick interruption, I also saw Barefoot Contessa with Bogey and... Uh, um, Ava Gardner, but that's well worth watching as well. Yeah, that's another Mankiewicz film. So obviously, you know, he was a you know a long-standing, well-respected director. Yeah, he won um, was it three Oscars in yeah. about three years or something like that, didn't he? Do you yeah, think that you know, do you think that any of those films from his past filmography showed anything that would suggest that he was the right man to take on just a, an absurdly epic you know production like this? I guess everybody has to have, if you are going to make these giant movies, everybody has their first one. It's like, you know, Anthony Mann obviously made El Seed and Cecil B. DeMille made quite a few of these. And David Lean, you know, long before David Lean ever made uh, Bridge on the River Choir, he's making movies like Brief Encounter. So it's hard to know what is the appropriate way to get groomed for one of these films. And eventually you just have to have that your trial by fire where you, you jump into the deep end of the pool and just hope you can swim. Yeah, and I think according to his son Christopher, who also worked on the film, Joseph was never proud of the final film. He obviously had been lured into the film by Walter Wanger on the promise of a final paycheck. And again, this is... For a director in 1963 to be paid $3.5 million to direct a film. I know director salaries are, are not often talked about, but $3.5 million in 63 is just insane. That, you know, that, again, it's just fine today. I mean, yeah. $3.5 million is a great director's salary, but it's one of those things where his longtime production manager got so stressed out by the experience. And these are experienced filmmakers. His production manager got killed outright making this movie just from a heart attack. Just yeah. The stress and the work was overwhelming. Mankiewicz was using injections to get his day going and to bring his day to a close. I, I don't know if anybody uh, alive was up to the task of both keeping the budget constrained or confined to something manageable at the same time delivering on uh, what they wanted to deliver. It's, it's just one of those impossible tasks. And as he later said, it was the toughest three films he ever made. Well, and his production manager um, was also in charge, of course, of budgets, and he was never replaced. No, and you know, if you, there's, there's a lot of correspondence between you know Mankiewicz and Wanger, and if you if you look at the correspondence there, I think it's all in um, sort of annotated form on the Blu-ray. There, there's so much sort of skirting over the facts there, and you know the fact that there were rumours that you know money was being siphoned off elsewhere, and actually just you know the, the film was bleeding money into people's pockets when it corruption be. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you know, obviously their accounting department probably got a lot to answer to. Yeah, well, there's one um, startling statistic I got here is uh, the mineral water bill for yes. the production was a quarter of a million pounds a week. That, that just, what yeah, can you say exactly. about that? It's insane. It's insane, yeah. yeah. I mean, there were definitely a lot of people on the set that needed water, but that definitely seems high. Well, I, I remember um, one quote they said because it ended up that Cleopatra was the only production that uh, 20th Century Fox were making at the time. He said that there were people in Tokyo at the time and they were buying drinks and putting it onto the Tokyo on Cleopatra's dam because they couldn't put it on anybody wow. else's. So, uh, you know, that, that uh, helped the budget well, as even well. Even smaller films will hide things, like just little things like 
if a production manager wants to take out a bunch of people to dinner, they'll just find a way to put it on their petty cash and things like that. So every movie has corruption, and the bigger the budget and the more paperwork, the easier it is to hide things within. So it seems like lots of people are taking advantage of the, the ripple effect of Cleopatra's scope. So, so obviously when the film, round two of filming Cleopatra, and obviously Mankiewicz had quite sensibly vetoed the idea to make the film in London, you know, where, where's the best place to shoot a film set in Rome? So obviously they go to Rome itself. I think the first exterior set that was built was the, the exterior for the huge like sort of opulent procession where Cleopatra it, you know comes into Rome which I think is that's that's the big that's the money shot yeah that's yeah. the money shot in the film that's the set piece because when you look at films like Spartacus when you've got that incredible battle scene you know, I can see it now on the field with all the troops in formation you've got you know the giant burning logs there's one thing about Cleopatra that as much as it's a huge sumptuous epic film there's no big memorable battle and that's something I think that you know you always sort of attach to you know a historical epic. It's got to have a big battle. Even the modern day ones like Braveheart and you know Kingdom of Heaven have got their big battle scenes. Well, they wanted to film big battle scenes, I think, for the ending. But by then, because yeah. Zanuck had taken over, and he said yeah. no, no more. And he and and this, in the documentary, the the film that changed Hollywood, they mentioned the fact that you know the um, budgets were cut and they couldn't film these battle scenes. And they showed the clip of. Uh, Mark Antony rushing towards his uh, towards Octavian and then you know trying to hit them with the swords fight fight why won't you fight yeah now that seemed to suggest that, that was a scene put in because you know in order to keep the budgets down I really like that scene I thought it was an excellent scene so I don't think it would have yeah. worked with a huge battle scene but there's a strange quote from Elizabeth Taylor where she said that um, when she saw the 192-minute version, she said they had cut the heart, the essence, the motivations, the very core, and tacked on all those battle scenes. It should have been about three large people, but it lacked reality and passion. I found it vulgar. And when I when I read that quote, I was thinking to myself, what battle scenes is she talking about? Because there, oh. you had the, a little hint of the sea battle, but it's mostly just focused on one ship. And then you have like the aftermath of a giant battle in the opening scene. But once again, it's the aftermath. I don't remember really any battles in this. So I, I just feel like it's almost like she had that quote without even seeing the movie. Well, that last that opening scene was actually the last scene that was filmed, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, wasn't it shot in Almeria in Spain? It was, yeah. yeah. And it was it, the only reason they put it in there is because Zanuck, who um, was trying to put it together... And of course, he, at one point he fired Mankiewicz and they had to bring him back because Mankiewicz was the only person who actually understood the material. And uh, when they put it together, they they realised that it wasn't working, so they had to spend more money mm. to go to uh, Spain to film this opening sequence. And that's why Richard Burton's not in it, because he was supposed to be in it. He's, they mention him in the background, I think, that he's down with... Uh, yeah, because there's, there's a, a Roman general that comes and uh, talks to, to Caesar, doesn't he, about the battle that you know, has just gone on. And he's a character that we never see again. So it's almost as if he's put in to sort of fill the, the Richard Burton sort of role of getting the exposition across. Yeah, yeah. whereas Richard, uh, Richard Burton should have been in the scene, you know, explaining what, you know, perhaps he would have been in the original scene. They couldn't um, bring him back. So obviously it was being filmed in Rome then. You had, you know, an Italian crew that weren't used to, you know, the shooting of live sound because obviously a lot of you know Italian productions at the time I think the vast majority of them were actually you know the, the sound was done in post absolutely all the Leone movies all the sword and yeah. sandal epics they always shot did all the sound in post and yeah Steve and I even talked about it on the episode of Wrong Real where you have an Italian actress who doesn't understand why she has to actually know her lines why can't she just <laughs> count from one to ten etc because she's too drunk to remember her lines and that for, to remind her that in France they actually do record that yeah <laughs> So obviously Mankiewicz now is shooting in Rome, and whilst he's shooting, you know, 
a few hundred meters away, you've got more sets being built. The Italian production crew have got no sort of um, thinking of, you know, oh, well, we need to be quiet. So days upon days of, of production were lost because they actually had to stop filming because of all the noise going on in the background. Which again, usually assistant directors would say, "Rolling, rolling, quiet, yeah. please." And never, and if you don't, and if you don't get quiet, they will throw your ass off the set. Yeah, and uh, talking about Italian movies, one of the people who apparently worked on Cleopatra was Sergio Leone. Yeah, wasn't this the film then that put him instead to do the Colossus of Rome, or was that? I think Colossus of Rome was it after Cleopatra or before? I think that was like '59. But ah, oh, right. So he'd already right. He'd already done that, there and you go. because. Um, so much money was owed to the um, Italian film industry, yeah. which they hadn't all received yet. They had Sorry, to... Colossus of Rhodes was 1961. Oh, which, yeah, in which that case, during he... the production of, yeah, when you've got such a, an extended production schedule like this, it's hard to actually put in chronologically the filmographies of a lot of the people who worked on Cleopatra. Did Burton do The Longest Day before or after or during this doing, film? Yeah, yes. um, you know, It's the same with like people like Leon. Who could have gone away and filmed, you know, the Colossus of Rhodes, and then come back and finish working on this? It's just going back to what I was just saying. The reason why um, Fistful of Dollars is such a cheap film to make mm. is because they didn't have any money. It yeah. always ruined the Italian film industry, yeah. and so they had to start from scratch making cheap movies. And of course, Westerns are very good with that, yeah. and that's why Fistful of Dollars was made in such a budget. Yeah, also apparently Cleopatra basically effectively killed the uh, sword and sandal craze in Italy because as soon as this movie was made and everybody, all the craftsmen and all the crew got used to these exorbitant daily rates that they were accustomed to on Cleopatra, especially for things like raw materials, it was almost impossible for the Italian film industry to match those rates moving forward. And so sadly, all these uh, sword and sandal epics that have been coming out of Italy just immediately dried up. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned... Uh the fact that uh, you know everything's been made here in Italy and that there's corruption involved. I wonder if there was any involvement of um, you know the old mafia. The mob, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I haven't read anything of this, no. but it's something that comes to mind, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, there's so much you know about this film that's been mooted, and I think even Martin Lando, who he, he he provides you know a lot of the commentary on the on the Blu-ray. You've got that thing of how much stock you put in some of these stories, but what anecdotes or stories you know from the prep you've done for this film are the ones that you find most staggering? Um, well, I tell you about one story I do like. You know, the entrance of Rome. Yeah, I do like the story about how the um, the the woman on the, the the first elephant as she's coming in, she falls off the elephant. Yeah, and of course, as um, was explained, an elephant skin is not very smooth. She ripped the back her backside and all up her back. Yeah. The skin come off. So they get somebody else to replace her who has 40 pounds heavier. Yeah. This woman has got to come to the front and they mark out and he's supposed to pick her up, mm-hmm. hold her until the next elephant comes on yeah. and then puts her down on the next elephant. He didn't realise that she was so heavy. He picked it up and fell into the bushes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great I story. think he injured himself as well. He did, he? yeah. I, I love the the anecdote about when uh, Elizabeth Taylor met Richard Burton for a second time. Apparently she had met him years before and thought he oh, was yeah. a bit of a barbarian but when they, when they first started working together on this, he showed up to set cripplingly hungover to the point where his hands were shaking and he couldn't even hold his own cups of coffee. It mean, probably was like a, a, almost a, a daily thing for Richard Burton, if you can believe all the stories about his uh, consumption. But apparently she was moved by how helpless and cute he appeared to be, and that's when they started to fall in love. It's the Florence Nightingale effect, isn't it? Yeah, they, uh, if it works. <laughs> if it works. <laughs> yeah, but of course it, it already worked for her how many times before? Four Oof, times? Well, we'll, we'll I think we'll, we'll come out to that shortly when we actually take the sort of 
deep plunge into the whole Burton Taylor controversy. Well, it's incredible just how people looked at that controversy at the time. It's just a reminder of just how different kind of societal morals were 50, 60 years ago because you had like politicians in America saying that Elizabeth Taylor's dual citizenship should be revoked because of you know the uh, the bad press she was receiving for being uh, un- unfaithful to her husband. I mean, today you basically got to commit like a violent crime to be persona non grata but back then just the fact that they were getting it on was enough to make like the the vatican get involved and start having to chastise it's just incredible just how more squeaky clean and conservative people's sexual morals were not that long ago i do like the quote from the vatican no they accused her of erotic vagrancy yeah and, yeah. yeah and the the, the <laughs> erotic vagrancy that's something i want to be guilty of <laughs> exactly and then you had, yeah, it was a it was a U.S. Congresswoman who threatened to halt Burton and Taylor's re-entry into the states on the grounds of undesirability. You know, the, yeah. these are two of the biggest actors in Hollywood at the time. And well, most of it, I think, was just blatant hypocrisy. Whereas, like, do as I say, not as I do. Where behind the scenes, as we all know, there was plenty of bad behavior going on. Just as far as the papers were concerned and the public at large, they wanted that squeaky clean image. But obviously, the late '60s pretty much brought an end to all of that. Obviously, before we move on to the big relationship that you know that happened off screen here, one of my favorite ones, and it's again, it probably sounds pretty sick, but you know the Alexandria shoot in Rome. I think it was about thirty. Oh, well, it was it was shot in Anzio, thirty to forty miles south of Rome. And as the crew were clearing the ground to build the exterior set, several crew members were killed by unexploded mines from World War Two. Yeah. I mean, how much more fucked up can this production get when you've got crew members being blown up by mines? Yeah. I mean, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I mean, another great one was the, the as the press dubbed it, the revolt of the slave girls because some of the scantily clad actresses were protesting the fact that their Italian male co-stars were being a little free with their hands and their quote-unquote compliments, and they eventually said we need either better wardrobe or bodyguards or protection just to keep them at, at bay and so on and so forth. But it's just, yeah, it's this, every everything that could have gone wrong in this movie, it was just a complete total spectacle and comedy of errors from start to finish. Uh, and don't forget the fact that after they filmed that uh, opening, the, the entrance into Rome, the cinematographer stopped everything and said, um, the lighting's not right. So they had to cancel the scene yeah. for six months. But yeah. when he showed it, to the investors into the studio they agreed because he basically said at this time of year the light doesn't come through the way we've designed it to and while it sounds like something ridiculous if you're designing all these archways and all these tunnels and things like that to be shot in, in natural light I think he had a point it's just one of the things that they should have brought up before they started rolling cameras like you know, <laughs> plan accordingly or, so or if they were going to build the sets maybe they could have thought of that when they were actually building it and built yeah. it at a slightly different angle yeah twist face it in the correct direction yeah the, you know the big stars of the piece Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton it's common knowledge now that you know a lot of the behind the scenes stories that were coming out you know about them was about their affair which like you say you know in the times we live in now when two married people have an affair it's not so much a big thing but back then you yeah, know. but then look at what happened when uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt got yeah, together. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, the tabloids definitely still enjoy it, but I think people, they sink their teeth into it as opposed to being horrified, or at least yeah. pretending to be horrified. I, I think the people's capacity for pretending to be shocked, 
I think was greater back then. Whereas now, infidelity is almost like par for the course for movie stars and pop stars. And didn't Richard Burton basically make a habit of having sex with every single actress he worked with? They said he was the kind of man who uh, he might cheat on his wife, but he always goes home to her, which I guess makes all forgiven. He eventually goes home, but she apparently left the set in disgust after a while because it was one of those things where there were like even scenes where they're making love on camera where they wouldn't stop when they said cut. It's just they were enjoying parading their affair in front of everybody. Yeah. Sybil Williams and he was and she was from Tylerstown oh. and I drive through Tylerstown every morning right. and one day I'm going to find out where she is I want yeah. to see if there's a plaque or something because yeah. uh, obviously she, I mean, she was um, quite famous in her own right you know um, she started a nightclub I believe in um, New York as well doesn't she so one day I'm going to find out where that is and then stop in the morning and perhaps I'll take a picture and send it to you guys yeah <laughs> so obviously Elizabeth Taylor she you know she was no stranger to controversy Eddie Fisher who yep. was you know, at the time with one of the Hollywood darlings, Debbie Reynolds, you know, obviously mother of Carrie Fisher. Elizabeth Taylor was, and I don't want to use the terms responsible, but obviously she played a big part in bringing that relationship to an end. <laughs> okay. And then you've got, well, yeah, then you've got Eddie Fisher was actually, I think he was he was paid as a consultant on Cleopatra, wasn't he? Sort of, I think the unofficial or the, you know, the unofficial line was to basically keep Elizabeth Taylor in check with her, you know, her health and, and some of her more, I think, difficult ways it must have been hard though because everybody knew of the affair and everybody I mean, you had Sybil there and you had Eddie there yeah and everybody knew about the affair except those two can you imagine being in the same room with those two and yeah. not being able to tell them well Martin Landau he's got one little anecdote he says in the commentary where he first came out you know became aware of what was going on when he went into the dressing room one day and you know he checked the call card and it was going to be a scene involving just him and Richard Burton so he goes into the, the makeup room and, and you know in costume and to his surprise, he was met by Elizabeth Taylor. So he went back out, checked the schedule and read it. And just as he thought, it was just him and Burton. Went back into the dressing room, at which point Burton came up to him, walked past him, gave Elizabeth Taylor a full-on kiss on the lips. And it was at that point then that the penny dropped with Lando and he realised that the pair were an item. But, you know, how long was this going on then before the press got involved? Bearing in mind, this is a you know a near enough, they, they were working on the film for a year and a half together. Yeah, and, they, and there was one scene where they were filming a love scene together and Mankovic shouted, Cat! Yeah, and they carried Cat. on kissing. Cat! <laughs> but I think a lot of people our age and younger forget just how beautiful Elizabeth Taylor was. Like, when I, when I was a kid... She, I was I used to her be, basically being like parodied by like John Belushi on Saturday Night Live talking about how I'm on a diet of just chicken and yeah. like and, and choking on chicken bones and like everybody thought of her as this kind of uh, I guess uh, over medicated kind of obese just crazy person. But in the late 50s, early 60s, she was one of the most stunning actors ever. I remember like that line in Goodfellas when uh, Ray Liotta said, yeah, she reminded me so much of Elizabeth Taylor in National Velvet. She had these great eyes. And at the time I was thinking, Elizabeth Taylor, she's a Gorgon, mm. but you watch this movie, and it is a reminder that she was at one time, you know, one of those perfect tens with the voluptuous body, and you have all those great like massage scenes and things, scenes where she's lounging and summoning Rex Harrison in for a, for a meeting, and I always kind of forget just how stunning she was, circa 1960. I do like that scene when she's there and she's um, lounging on the, uh, you know, she's there on the lounge, and Rex Harrison comes in, and you've got her maid keeps him covering her up. <laughs> yeah. Lovely little moment, I think. And I think those scenes are the most effective for me. Rex Harrison's one of those actors where, whether it's like um, Unfaithfully Yours, the Preston Sturgis movie, or what else has he been in? Oh, he's been in so many Marvel's movies. The first one I ever saw him, I think, was uh, My Fair Lady. Yeah. That yep. was the first yeah. time I saw him. And Doctor Doolittle. Doctor Doolittle, yeah. But, you know, whatever you're going to say about the film and about, you know, the final quality of it. My favourite portion of this film, this might be the unpopular one, is actually the first half, where Rex Harrison obviously is 
That's my favorite as well. Yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, I, everything I involving Caesar, yeah. I think, is much more interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just... I, I think it's just Harrison's performance. He's, I don't think Richard Burton's character... I, I think, basically, he is a victim of the idea of making these two separate films because one thing we haven't talked about is initially there were going to be two separate films, two separate three-hour films, uh, Caesar and Cleopatra and Anthony and Cleopatra. Now, obviously, you know, the studio, you know, they put a stop to that and the, the, the idea of two films was condensed into one. In fact, pretty much, they'd shot most of it. And I think this is where much of the excise footage was, was cut up, where they're paring down two three-hour films into one three or four hour film i think burton's character is the one that loses out the most because he's sort of dropped into the film although we do see him in the first half of the film before the intermission we never get to know him whereas i feel there's even though again um, rex harrison is only in the first half of the film i find that his character is far more richer i think you find out a lot about um, caesar in that very first scene yeah when he says you know let's not push through let's go mm. to the market and then he shows his uh disappointment with the death of pompey yeah um and well not just disappointment he's, he's actually hurt oh I, uh, very much so and that's his, his performance yeah. is excellent so you get a, a real sense of who he is from the very beginning whereas anthony he kind of yeah. he's a bit of like a, a wet flag he's you know he um falls seemingly very quickly he says that he's always loved her but there's nothing in the first half to suggest that there are also some really clumsy awkward kind of ham-fisted scenes where when she asks him to kneel when he's speaking her, he's like what and he has this kind of fake phony outrage mm. it feels like a bunch of children got together to write a dramatic confrontation between cleopatra and antony it's just it's so obvious and it's so clumsy that i feel like it just completely lacks the nuance and subtlety of some of the earlier scenes with Caesar. And I think probably because Joseph Mankiewicz, since he basically was shooting the film sequentially, had more energy and focus and concentration mm. on the first yeah. part. And is why the, la the latter part of the movie feels so, like, just so fat and cumbersome and just like air coming out of a balloon. So I would gladly watch the first half of this movie anytime. I don't think I'll ever watch the second half of this movie ever again. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, like you just said, Steve, you know, Mankiewicz was very sort of effective in setting up Caesar's character in just a few scenes because you know that that opening scene, uh, you've got Caesar's victory against Pompey, who had betrayed him, and then he'd left for Alexandria. Caesar goes after him, and you've got that moment where he first instructs his men to make their way through the market and buy things instead of forcing their way through as a mark of respect to the Egyptians, and then when Cleopatra's brother, as if I can never pronounce it, Asolimpi Ptolemy. Ptolemy when he presents Caesar with the head of Pompey, you know, Caesar is clearly disturbed that his former ally, as much as he's betrayed him, has met like a grisly and, and dishonorable end. Yet, he's disgusted by this, but he, he maintains his professionalism. Well, I think if you contrast it with the way at the end of the film, Roddy McDowell, when he finds out that Mark Antony's dead. Yeah. Now, McDowell's performance, I think, is excellent in the film. It is, yeah. However, he says, you know, uh, Somebody says Mark Anthony's dead. I've, so got, I've, got, I've got it. I've got it's it here. Great, right? it's, it's one of the, like you say, the, you know, the script of this film. I don't think there's much in a way memorable dialogue there, but that one scene with Octavian at the end, where one of his guards says, "You know, Mark Anthony's dead," and he says, "Is that how one says it? As simple as that. Mark Anthony is dead. Lord Anthony is dead. The soup is hot. The soup is cold. Anthony is living. Anthony is dead." 
and then you know he goes on he the the way he puts that guard down for the the, the, the sort of just lack of respect he's showing Mark Anthony is incredible and and that is you know in the latter half of the film that's one of I think you know really the the, the few highlights in the second well, part. Of the film. What about when he throws the spear and kills yes. Hugh Cronin's oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. But no, that scene where you just said it, it's yeah. a highlight. But what did Anthony do to deserve that um, tribute? Exactly. I you know, I, I just didn't feel that even even the chemistry between. You know, obviously there was a chemistry between Burton and Taylor but I think after we've seen Caesar die I think it's far too quickly then before they become an item before Anthony and yeah. Cleopatra fall in love and having not had him in the film earlier on there's just nothing there to suggest that those two have got any sort of chemistry um, you know what I would like to have seen is uh, it may have been historically inaccurate it's just a bit of interaction between Cleopatra and Mark Antony are you whilst, saying that the rest of the film is historically accurate well exactly you know, <laughs> you know ultimately this, these are you know, the, the whole thing about Cleopatra was based on the writings of, of Plutarch so how much of that is just fabricated exactly but uh, no I, I, but that scene with uh, going back to Hume Cronin getting a uh, spear into his chest in one shot that's, he's, that's he's a good shot impressive. yeah He'd certainly be good in the Olympics at the javelin. Yeah, and and he took it as well. He's not a very big man, but uh, he took it. So, again, this is how much of this is legend, how much of this is fact. Is Mankiewicz's initial assembly cut was rumoured to have run for eight and a half hours. Now that sounds ludicrous for any sort of first cut of a film. Granted, he shot about I think ninety six hours of footage. Eric von Stroheim's greed was longer when he first showed it to Irving Thalberg. So exactly what I was just thinking. Every once in a while, directors have uh, unrealistic expectations from studio heads and, and you know what um, I was thinking also on the, the way that uh, they were talking about um, some of the background they actually used gold leaf for some reason yeah. they never heard of gold paint so they had to use gold leaf which obviously is much more expensive it reminded me of Foolish Wives which uh, <coughs> uh, Stroheim um, he uh, used uh, you know the most expensive caviar, and he used uh, mm. sterling silver. You know, he's making a black and white film. Yeah, he, he would give gold. his actors really expensive underwear, underwear that would never be seen. Yeah. but he just wanted them to know that it was there and it was on it because he knew it would affect their performances. Yeah, and I think in a, theory, a, a lot of that you know sort of ridiculous approach to the production and the production design in Cleopatra. Say what you like about the film is jaw dropping. It is. I mean, seeing her sitting on oh. that Sphinx coming into in, into Rome is still one of the most jaw dropping things I've ever seen on film. Not necessarily because of the emotions of the scene, but it's just when you look at it and you just think it's fucking there like mm. it is something tangible everything about every single temple every single room and apparently all the actual existing places from history they would see them in real life and be like well these are way too small we got to go way bigger than this like there's zero attempt to mm. actually capture history or reality everything got amplified everything got exploded and amplified it's just uh, incredible how they they never tapped the brakes once and i applaud them for their ambition because like i said you you will never see this uh, ambition mm. In terms of carpentry, ever again. Well, the Sphinx is twenty foot tall, twenty eight foot tall. Oh, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? And there's so many. Like one of the things that struck me about the editing of the film, there's so many stunning establishing shots where you've got uh, like guards marching, you know, into into Rome, and 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 just basically troops moving to and fro. And some of those shots last literally three to four seconds. Yeah. It, it's as if you know they they. They took the effort of going to these incredible locations, getting everyone in their costumes, setting up the you know the, the cameras, whatever, and and you know the coordination of all of these extras would have been a nightmare in itself, only to amount for a few seconds on screen. 
if you're going to go to all that trouble of making a beautiful scene, at least get your money's worth from it. And how much of that was was left on the editing floor? Oh, absolutely. They probably they probably filmed hundreds of hours just for that. Yeah. One it, question I have though: when the first woman you see, she's not wearing very much at all. How controversial was that? I wonder. In in the procession, the, yes. when yeah, she's so she's the, yeah she's out in front. She comes running out, basically like some flowers over her uh, over her breasts and not not much else. And just I think maybe because she's dancing so athletically and so expressively, people are like, oh, it's just ballet, it's artistic. But yeah, it's funny how um, I guess this movie for its time was definitely right up on the edge of like acceptable nudity. And not only that, but also a language as well, because I think the, um, doesn't, uh, some of the Romans, when they discuss in um, Caesar's Child, they mentioned the bastard, which I th- I'm not sure, you know, was that uh, a controversial word for the time, considering... Yeah, we're starting to see a loosening or a, le- a, a, a slackening of the Hollywood production code that had kept creativity like under such a... I guess in such a chokehold for so many years, but obviously it took a few more years before movies like Bonnie and Clyde would totally explode it and uh, eradicate it. But yeah, I think we're seeing the tail end of the code that was pretty much started to become rigidly enforced starting in 1934. Well, I suppose that's the the beginning of the the 60s that we know. Yeah, and well, we love. Well, yeah, obviously you know going into the 60s and you know only a few years later then when you've got you know films like uh, you know Midnight Cowboy, the first accurate film winning. Best First picture. on-screen blowjob, and it's between yeah. two dudes. Between two men, which, you know, how controversial <laughs> is that for the time? So we, we were well, only a few but, years, you know, away from this sort of um, sort of doing away with the, the quite stuffy sort of attitudes towards sex and, and, you know, adultery and things like that. What do y'all think of this just as a movie, as experience, as an experience of the story? Throw out all the behind-the-scenes, throw out all the history. If you're just having a historical epic kind of festival and you're showing – all of them from the early 50s through the mid 60s up through say the bible or sound of music where does cleopatra rank for you guys next to like follow the roman empire and ben-hur and el Cid and all these other movies uh, i think it's quite difficult because as i think we've all alluded to the first half i think rates quite highly the second yeah. half doesn't yeah um you know my, my favorite is still spartacus i mm. think that is by far the best i think yeah i I think if I'm ranking my my, my favorite historical epics, my favorite's got to be Ben Hur. I, I just think it's an incredible film. You know, I, I know Chuck Hessen gets a bit of flack, but I just I just love the film. I love the, that sort of rivalry between him and Stephen Boyd. I think Stephen Boyd is incredible in the film. Um, you know, I think there's a few a few performances like a little bit melodramatic, but that film is just staggering. You know the. You've got set pieces in that film which might not just be complete action, like the setup to the chariot race. Now I know the chariot race obviously you know gets a lot of kudos, but the, just the setup to it, the fact that they built that staggeringly big set, and we you know, we spend much like George Lucas would do with the pod race, which I think was um, a bit of an homage to that scene. We just spend several minutes just just absorbing that incredible set that they made, and I think that's what a film like Cleopatra lacks. It, they went to all of this effort to make this opulent scenery and and you know this sort of recreation of Rome, and I don't think they they reveled in it like they should. So I think yeah, Ben Hur, uh, Spartacus, Lawrence of Arabia, they might sort of top tier historical yeah, epics. 
Yeah, um, I, I often think when I'm when I'm thinking of these epics, so I don't often think of things like Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge of the I, I know, Quai. yeah, because obviously Lawrence of Arabia is set near our time, yes, but yeah. it, you know, it's still historical, and you know, my God, it's it's one of the yeah. I guess it's easy to think of like it's easy to lump all the religious and sort of like anything circa the birth of Christ, either like a few decades before or a few decades after. It's easy to lump them all yeah. together because they all come from that similar period. But sometimes they're centuries apart. But yeah, there are definitely no very few sandals on display in Lawrence of Arabia. But I have to say, of all the historical epics that I've ever seen, Lawrence of Arabia for me reigns supreme above them all. Oh yeah, I, and like when I say with Ben Hur, that's, that's personal preference. I, I Lawrence of Arabia is incredible. It I always think back of that that quote from Steven Spielberg: "It's a miracle of a film." And it is. Yes, absolutely. It is incredible. And I think the reason I'm lumping that in with historical epics, as much as it starts in England with, spoiler alert, you know, the death of T.E. Lawrence on the motorbike, soon as then we go out into the Middle East, you are being transported back in, in time to just a, a different era. And it's one of the most beautiful films ever made. Um, obviously, you know, James, you've covered um, the early films of David Lean um, on Wrong Reel. You know, I can't wait for you to move on to the epics. Um, you know, films yeah, I need like- to get Stephen Saunders to commit. Like Stephen Saunders, he's uh, I guess closer in neighbor to you guys than, than for me. He lives in uh, Liverpool, and he's got so many ideas about topics he wants to uh, to pitch. And he does the podcast. Let's get stuck into. Yeah. Um, and he also is the uh, editor-in-chief of Screen Mayhem, but he's got a million topics. We recently tackled Charlie Chaplin, his early short film, so I don't know when we'll get back to David Lean, but it'll have to happen at some point. Oh, yeah, because like Lawrence Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Bridge on the River Kwai, just three of the greatest films of all time. You think so, Dr. Zhivago? It's, again, it's right, it, is, it is a soap opera. It's very melodramatic. It looks um, beautiful. But... My grandfather, he, again, that was one of the earliest sort of historical epics. And he was a big Omar Sharif fan. Because mm. my grandfather, he is, he was half Italian, half Yugoslavian. And I think in his younger days, he saw himself as a bit of an Omar Sharif. So one day when I was just probably far too young to really appreciate it, he sat me down. And I don't know what it was about the film, but I watched it from start to finish, which you know, for me at that time, it must have been maybe about, I don't know, nine or ten. But there's something about that film that stuck with me. You are right. It is a bit of a melodrama. You know, I think the way the central character flits between, is it Geraldine Chaplin and oh, um, Julie, Julie Christie? Christie. Yes. Oh, Julie Christie, my God. You know, one of the most beautiful women ever to be on screen. I don't know. I, I, I like the film. And for me, Omar Sharif will always be the star of Top Secret. <laughs> <laughs> that's his, that's his greatest moment. Yeah, it's you know I I do. I'm not saying it's top tier, Lean. I, I certainly wouldn't put Doctor Zhivago in my top ten. But you know, going back to Cleopatra, it's never ever going to come anywhere close to my top ten historical epics because the way I see it, the first half of the film is engaging because I do like the character interaction between Rex Harris and Elizabeth Taylor. The second half of the film falls completely flat for a four hour and eleven minute historical epic. It's got one big battle scene, the one at sea doesn't last very long isn't particularly well choreographed you don't get much of a sense of epic scale even though there are these sort of legends that you know they had the biggest fleet in the world at the time you know when they were making that film or one of the biggest fleets i I like richard burton this is far from his best film i like him way more in other movies like who's afraid of virginia wall and things like that well let me revise my question earlier about uh what y'all think about this what about when it comes to runaway productions whether you're talking about dw griffith's intolerance or Fitzcarraldo with Werner herzog or uh island of dr moreau or apocalypse now like there are a lot of famous runaway productions that have completely fallen on their face when it comes to ranking your all-time favorite historical stories about the making of a movie where would Cleopatra rank next to some of those other famous runaway productions? It, it'd be up there. I, I still think to this day, 
my, my two favorite making of um, things are Blade Runner, which isn't so much of a failure ultimately. Um, Apocalypse Now, which isn't a failure at all because it's one of the greatest films ever made, but I just love Hearts of Darkness. I, I love Fitzcarraldo because he he, did he took that ship over that mountain. <laughs> he did, yes. And yep. when you look at the mechanics, now a friend of mine is a mechanical engineer. One night we were in work late at night and on my tablet we were looking for things to watch and I think it was probably from the documentary My Best Fiend and I showed him some excerpts because it was so much just classic things between uh, Herzog and Klaus Kinski in that, in that documentary. But one of the things was a little bit about Fitzgeraldo. And I actually said to him, they actually took that ship over that mountain. And he was, again, his, his insane sort of, you know, mathematical, mechanical mind. He thought, how the fuck did they do that? And I said, well, there, there is a making of documentary about his summer, which I couldn't find at the time. But Fitzgeraldo is a great film. It, 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 it is probably my favourite Werner Herzog film. I'm, I'm not overly keen on some of his films. Like um, Nosferatu's okay. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of Aguirre. No, I, like I don't know what it is. It's it's just I I'm more fascinated with the behind the scenes stuff between Kinski and 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 Werner Herzog. I, I just think it's incredible. My best fiend is probably one of my top five favorite documentaries about film. You know, a lot of it is has been embellished upon. Like you got that the, the story about Herzog firing the gun through the hut and nearly killing. Um, someone because he was trying to kill Kinski or, or it may have been the other way around Cleopatra is just I think it's just a good example of of the studio system at the time and how they were allowed having already spent or wasted seven million dollars to then go on and spend even more money because it was beyond the point of no return if they pulled out that money would have been lost they would never have had any chance of making a profit when ultimately they say in I think in 1973 yeah, it broke even and it they broke closed even. the books yeah, yeah they so, closed the books yeah. so it, it's a fascinating film it was the number one grossing movie of yeah. its release. Granted, yeah. it didn't it didn't go into the black till several years later. But to be fair, this movie has like it had like sold out performances for months after upon its release. Plenty of critics bashed it for a lot of the reasons that we have bashed it. But the population, the crowds, ate it up. So I think their kind of mad, impulsive ambition was rewarded or paid back in dividends. If they'd basically not gone to the UK and they hadn't had to stop and restart. It probably would have been considered a successful film in the year of its release. So while it's definitely the most expensive movie ever made, it's oftentimes misinterpreted or un- described inaccurately as the, like the biggest money loser of all time. And there are plenty of other movies that are way ahead of it. Yeah, I think the way I see it is it's a film that you know I, I was expecting to watch it most recently. Now having you know I think the first time I saw Cleopatra, you know I, I'd seen pretty much all of the historical epics that I hold in high regard. You know I thought it was okay at the time, and I. That's why I'm pretty sure, thinking back, it was the three-hour version I've, I've seen. Because this four-hour version seems to be padded out with far more scenes than I can remember. I think even the second time when I saw it, probably back in the late 90s, again, it wasn't the, the complete four-hour version. I just found that this version, is, it's got so much fat on it. That's another problem with writing it as you go along. There's yeah. nobody to edit it for you. That's right. And I, I think it's a film that I, I would have been more interested to actually see those two separate films because I think it, it would have just solved a lot of my problems with him. Mark Antony's character would have, would have not been given such short shrift. Well, and, and the fact that it's um, it was set out to be two films, maybe if it was set out as one film, mm. we would have had more of Mark Antony in the beginning That's right. so that he would have developed that character earlier. But because he was thinking of two films... yeah. He was thinking of we'll separate them completely, and that's I think, one of the one of the reasons why it falls. You know, it's definitely lower tier for me. I I've seen the film three times now. I would, I would watch it again, 
just so I can sort of put my final stamp on how I feel about the film, whether I will or not. There's, there's far more historical epics, which I've not seen for so long. Films like Fall of the Roman Empire. I don't even think I've seen The Robe. Quo Vadis is another one I want to go back and watch. Time isn't... Um, and tons of them from the 1920s. I mean, yeah. starting with Birth of a Nation, or really starting with just uh, Kabiria, which was even earlier than Birth of a Nation, up through the late 20s, they were making giant historical epics all, all around the world. So there's tons of these movies to study and enjoy. Yeah, you know, when you've got like a long to-watch list, which includes films I haven't seen and films I'm desperate to rewatch, have I got time to devote to watching a four-hour, 11-minute film again, which I've already seen and I'm not that keen on? I, I don't think so. What was the last great modern historical epic? Like 21st century? Now, unpopular opinion. Obviously, you know, Braveheart in 95 and Gladiator then to, to more of an extent in 2000 sort of kick-started this reinvigoration of the, of the historical epic genre for you know a brief time. One of my favourites is Wolfgang Peterson's Troy. Now, I know... It, ah. the I think there's a... Of the two two versions there's a theatrical version which was the one that was available for years and then when it came out on blu-ray he was able to go back and do his director's cut which i think is probably about 45 minutes longer than the theatrical cut now i was already a fan of the theatrical cut the director's cut as well as being more far more graphically violent it's one of those films and again i know this is an opinion shared by everyone but when the lord of the rings films were were put out in their extended form. I felt that the films breathed better. They they flowed better, even though they were longer. Uh, I feel the same about Troy. I think the longer version is a much better film. And I think the same thing applies then to Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. The longer version is far better. Yeah, I agree with the, the, There's so many plot threads which are established in the theatrical version, which are just not seen through. And then the extended version allows Scott to put everything back in. You know, he's still got some issues. Um, you know, I think mainly with the, the, the central performances and the strongest from Orlando Bloom. The, this sort of love of historical epics I've got has carried through to the modern ones. And even then, when you've got like the you know the, the sort of epic ones like which are more fantasy, like Lord of the Rings. You know, I'm a big fan of them. You know, they're probably my favourite movie trilogy, if I'm honest. Yeah, you know, I, I am a big fan of of even the modern ones, films like Gladiator. Yeah, yeah, I, I love Gladiator as well. I Where do you stand on Oliver Stone's? Uh, oh my god. I, I have got I've got much like I've got a fascination with failed films and, and why they came to sort of fall apart films like Robocop 2 which you know you know as we've talked about on on the previous wrong wheel episode Oliver Stone and Alexander is it baffles me he, he releases in 2004 theatrical cut which a theatrical version of which I think was something like 175 minutes later on the same year he releases a director's cut which I think is 167 minutes. And then he releases in, I think, 2007, the final cut, which is 214 minutes. Now, the final cut should have been the final cut. But lo and behold, he released a few years after that, another version. He's released four versions of Alexander. Yeah, I still have never seen it because I, oh. I kind of don't know which one to watch. And I've never found someone who actually likes the movie enough to even tell me what is the best version? I will, I will say one thing about it. Though. I have the soundtrack and I love the soundtrack. Yeah, the it, soundtrack, Vangelis, is It is an amazing soundtrack. It's like that battle in um, the, the one in the big sandy desert. Which one's that? It's the one that the, the final cut opens with. And, uh, yes. Um, you know, and I, I'm not pitching this as a future wrong with episode, James, because I just I don't think I've... <laughs> I, I'm, I, You'd have to watch all yeah, four versions. I'd have to watch versions. all four versions, which I couldn't do. It, it's, it's not a great film. That Some of the performances are dreadful. Uh, it's got oh, what's her name um, uh, from uh, James you'll know from uh, the Marvel Netflix films uh, 
a Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson, who I'm absolutely in love with. It's got Jared Leto in it, which I'm not such a big fan of. It's a big, hot, camp, over-the-top mess. But <laughs> I just love the fact that Stone just didn't give up and he is still tinkering with it. And I'm, I'm just waiting for the fifth version of it. <laughs> Alexander, this is definitely the final well, fucking cast. he was cast. miscast, yeah. I think. Colin Farrell. Oh, Colin yeah. Farrell. He was miscast completely. Yeah, he, he wasn't right for it. And, you know, as much as... You know, I, I've been a little bit critical of Fowl over the years. He can act. I think as much as season two of uh, True Detective got a bit of flack, he is amazing in it. Absolutely fantastic. He's not in Alexander. No, he's not. Uh, in fact, what's his name? Uh, who plays his father? Uh, Philip. Uh, oh, uh, Val, Val Kilmer. He oh, is better. I even forgot Val Kilmer was in there. <laughs> James, I, I think it's one of those things that, much like Cleopatra, you can now say you've watched it, and you know you, you can put your own stamp on whether or not you think all the stories about it are true. I definitely think you should seek out at least one of the versions of Cleopatra, probably the final cut. <laughs> but, Cleopatra? Uh, not Alexander. Cleopatra, sorry, Alexander. Yeah, the, the, the character himself, he's is so fascinating. He conquered so much of, of the of the world at the time. There's such I a good... I love that line about how when he finally uh, had finished his uh, push east, he wept. He wept because there were no he had, more... He'd run out yeah. of lands to conquer. Oh, incredible. Yeah, would we know that if it wasn't for Die Hard? That's right. Yeah, I know <laughs> that because Hans Gruber speaks that line yes, in Die Hard. Yes. To the best of my knowledge, there's nothing anywhere near that poetic in Alexander. You know, I, I love Oliver Stone. Like Films like Salvador, Platoon. You know, I, I'm a big fan of JFK, even though... Um, you know, they, I think there's some historical inaccuracies in that. He's he's one of those directors that when he goes full out batshit crazy, he he can still pull in an entertaining film. And he's uh, got so many good ones to his name, and for whatever reason, younger film, I guess films like uh, cinephiles seem to ignore him entirely. I'm like, well, watch Salvador, watch Platoon. I mean, yeah. you or or just his watch screenplay Nixon. for Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. But he's, yeah, he's got so much great work to his name. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend Alexander James. Uh, watch it on as big a screen as you can find, but just be prepared that if you think Cleopatra is, you know, a, a bit of a mess in terms of acting and scripting, then Alexander sort of takes that up to eleven. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Well, I'll, at some I got, sadly because of my channel and my podcast, and I have so many demands on my time in terms of things to watch. I haven't watched a movie just for fun, and like three years so it's, unless I do an Oliver Stone episode of Wrong Real it'll never get seen oh, you got a good excuse yeah <laughs> so guys is there anything else that, that you know any anecdotes or, or little factoids about, about Cleopatra that we've that we've left out that you're going to be thinking afterwards oh shit I wish I'd said that I guess my one take of it, I want to watch more movies starring Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor because I've only seen a few like I saw Boom uh, you know Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf which is a masterpiece and this I can't think of any others that I've seen with them together but I am fascinated by their love-hate relationship multiple divorces multiple marriages all that stuff so it's a I guess their relationship is a chapter of film history that I want to continue exploring yeah well they went on to make 11 films together I think the first one I ever saw in school we were made to watch the team of the show the 67 Franco Zeffirelli version yeah Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf I've definitely seen I vaguely think think I've seen Vincent Minnelli's film The the Sandpiper but that's it I don't think I've seen no, any I, I don't think I have any at all no. I, I think that the quality was very variable wasn't it yeah it was two of them. it was and I think even in between those 11 films they actually split up and spent like I think a year or two apart yeah and yeah, then and got then back together married, I think they were yeah. married didn't they get married a second time yeah twice yeah Oh, she was yeah. two of her eight. What? Wow. <laughs> but what I would add is, um, if anybody's interested in this um, 
film, you've got to watch the documentary as well. Yeah. The film that changed history. That's right. And, you know, any anyone who's a fan of audio commentaries out there, it's a four hour plus film. Listening to an audio comedy for that long is going to be a bit of a slog for some people. I've got to say, Martin Landau, anytime he's speaking, he is just riveting. You've got um, Christopher Mankiewicz and his brother who also are really frank in the things they, they, they discuss. It, it's one of the greatest audio comedies I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. There's an argument, it's probably more entertaining than the film itself. <laughs> well, I, I could listen to Martin Lander talk for hours because yeah. he is such a gentleman. He is. You know, and he, he doesn't reveal too much. He is, like I say, he is a gentleman. Yeah. But his, uh, his voice and his enthusiasm, he, he still likes the film after all this time. He does, he does. So, any last words on Cleopatra, guys? Are we all agreed that it it is a fascinating, hot mess? It's half a good film. It's half a good film. Fascinating historically and as a movie, all over the place. And, you know, I'm glad we picked this as, you know, as something to talk about. Because you can't always, when you're doing a retrospective, talk about the great films. Um, When a film is as interesting in its failure, sort of artistically, as this one, I think, you know, there's... There's certainly things of merit to talk about. Look at all those great anecdotes, yeah. you know, and it's just the insanity of it all. So, James, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Is there anything else you want to plug? Tell us about your upcoming episodes. Uh, upcoming episodes, big one on the New York Film Festival next week. Got a big one on the director slash producer. I always pronounce, mispronounce the name, but Shoehark or Shayhark. You know, he Sweet. did like. Is uh, it Sweetheart? Sweetheart, yeah. you know, the guy behind uh, Once Upon a Time in China. Uh, got a Mario Bava double feature. Going to tackle the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror uh, cartoons for uh, Halloween. So lots of fun stuff on the horizon. And with my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, basically any movies and or shows that aren't covered by the podcast, I'll be dipping my toes into those waters as well. But just go on Google, uh, go on YouTube, search my name, James Hancock. You'll find my videos. Uh, just before we wrap, um, I'd just like to give a big shout out to um, someone on Facebook, Mary Slaymaker, who sent us a really nice email recently. Steve, yes, yeah, it was lovely. It was yeah. lovely. And, you know, I love it when people email us because it's more of a sort of personal thing to that. And as much as, yeah, if you want to sing our praise on social media, please crack on. But, you know, thank you very much, Mary. You, you said about how much you're enjoying the podcast and you've left us a, a really nice review on iTunes. So a big thanks to Mary and everyone else who's following us on social media. Uh, we'd like to give just a massive thanks to our listeners for making episode 16 our predator episode the most downloaded episode yet um you know we're pushing ever upwards in the, in the podomatic charts and it's all thanks to you guys and girls for recommending us to your friends please uh, you know leave us an itunes review because you know as james will know himself the way itunes works is a strange thing um in order for itunes to, to promote you you have to have it's not enough you have a lot of followers you've got to have a lot of positive reviews as well i, I really don't understand how it works but you know please if, if you Think we're that good. Give us a good review. It'll, it'll be much appreciated. James, where can people uh, reach you if they want to speak to you on social media? Best place is always Twitter, at Colbrex. Great. And please, guys and girls, as we keep saying, check out Wrong Real. Film 89 wouldn't exist without it. If James hadn't invited me back on in, I think it was late 2016. Well, know, we did, what, Top 10 Marvel? We did we, we Robocop. Did, yeah. We did Blade Runner. We did Alien. Alien. Uh, we did Tarantino. Yeah, Tarantino. so we we tackled a bunch of topics so yeah, yeah i always just, enjoy i, I like I like you're you're our, our brothers from across the pond and i enjoy all of our collaboration and, and don't forget the episode that steve bailed on me and left me uh to do Indiana oh, yeah, Jones yeah, on my Jones. own yeah, yeah 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 so we've done a ton of episodes uh, together i'm never gonna live that one down the way oh well you know <laughs> but i think that's that's probably still my favorite wrong wheel episode i've done on my own I, i'm always very critical of when I, I anytime i go on wrong wheel on my own i always get that thing of i don't know it's like going up against muhammad ali yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, 
I, you flatter me, but I, 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 you guys, as long as you love films, and you all, you all obviously do, I feel like that's the only criteria for coming on Wrong Reels. You just have to have a topic that you're you know, jumping out of your skin to discuss, and I find that that enthusiasm becomes contagious for the listeners. So yeah, people make me pitches, whether they got 10 followers or 10,000, doesn't matter. I just want to tackle good, great topics with great guys, and so I, I love how my, my Wrong Reel contributors here in the States and you guys across the pond, how everybody's kind of intermingling and hanging out and talking, and it's just a, a lot of fun seeing our online community continues to grow and spread it does indeed um upcoming episodes that we're looking to get hayden spurl back on um and we're going to be getting another awesome well, member of the wrong real community to make his film 89 debut uh, i'm not going to say too much more about that we're going to be moving away from film in that episode and we're going to be entering the realm of television taking the big dive on what may well be my all-time favorite television miniseries so please stay tuned for that steve where can people meet uh, contact you if they want to speak to you on social media uh, on twitter at welsh bluesman and, and facebook and facebook if Don't you wish forget yes. facebook <laughs> Guys, I've got to say, uh, Neil Gaskin has been doing a tremendous effort of pushing us on Facebook, and we've a few of our tweets have gone, or sorry, a Facebook post have gone viral this week. So thanks very much. We've got a shitload of new followers. So uh, welcome all. I hope uh, you also listen to the podcast. Um, if you want to reach me, you can get me on Facebook and Twitter at Sky Movies, and you can also email us all admin at Film Eighty Nine UK, and you can follow us all on Facebook and Twitter at Film Eighty Nine UK. So, James, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have to get our thinking caps on and, and come up with a, our next wrong real appearance. Or maybe... Yeah, I think, well, uh, well I owe Neil Gaskin a, uh, an appearance. So we, I might have to uh, jump past you guys and find another one of y'all's collaborators and give him a moment to, uh, you know, to, to shine. James, my troops are yours, sir. They're yours to command. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to wrap things up now. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. As usual, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy.